Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, friends. I'm Alicia. Welcome back to the good podcast about bad relationships. <laughs> We're really excited you joined us today. Who do you have for us this week, Alicia? Often requested. It seemed like Halloween was the perfect time to do this. The Trashy Divorces of Frankenstein's monster, the Grinch, Boris Karloff. <laughs> he is a Hall of Famer in his divorce count. He's got five, but he's a Hall of Famer and our trashy hearts, too. <laughs> it's really a fascinating story, y'all. It is. All tricks, no treats. Lots of marriages, lots of divorces, lots of real estate, lots of spider webs. I think y'all will love it for this Halloween week. But before we begin, I have this magic mirror to give some big shout out and thanks to you for our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces, getting ad free episodes and bonus episodes. Join the community over there. We are so grateful to y'all. Stacy, who do you see? Thank you so much to Paula W, Anna E, Lacey S, Amy O, new super supporter, Megan M. Holy cats, y'all rock. But don't put that mirror down yet because I see a few other names. So many folks who already have their ticket for our virtual live show this Thursday night, November the 3rd at 8 p.m. right here from Trashy Divorces headquarters. It is not too late to jump on board and grab your ticket. Go to moment.co slash Trashy Divorces to get yours. We can't wait to hang out with all of y'all this Thursday for our roller coaster of trash candy fun. <laughs> Until then, it's important. Not to confuse Boris Karloff with the character he created, the two are very different. Yes. Man or Muppet. <laughs> Who can decide? Let's go, go, go. Alicia, you have a Halloween spooktacular subject for us this week? A little bit. A little bit. A lot of people have wanted this story for a long time. It felt like... Halloween weekend was the perfect time to pull out the trashy divorces of Boris Karloff. Makes sense. Now, many people today only recognize the name Boris Karloff as the actor who played Frankenstein mm -hmm. many, many years ago. Although that is what the man is best known for, he was much more than that. Is he a Muppet or a man? Man or Muppet? In fact, in his illustrious career, Boris Karloff appeared in close to a hundred movies. <laughs> and made innumerable television and radio appearances. His breakthrough performance as Frankenstein only happened mostly by chance. It's kind of an accident. Children worldwide will hear Boris Karloff's voice every Christmas season when they watch the much-beloved The Grinch That Stole Christmas, mm -hmm. although they have no idea who Boris Karloff is. Of course. In stark contrast, though, to his film roles as monsters in the narration of The Grinch, in person, Boris Karloff was a shy and sweet and generous man. <laughs> Unlike so many other actors of his and any generation, really, there are no unkind words 
or salacious stories written about him. By all accounts, he was a gentleman who liked to garden and took enormous amount of pleasure in helping others. This seems great. Now, don't turn off the podcast, y'all. It's still going to be trashy. We got all kinds of a ride for you. Because along the way, Hall of Famer Boris Karloff (laughs) married a total of six times. Hmm. Although not much is known about many of those marriages, they are pieces to the puzzle of the fascinating life of a very gentle monster. Let's get into it. The gardening monster. Okay. The gardening monster, Boris Karloff. Who was born William Henry Pratt on November the 3rd, 1887 in a suburb of London called Camberwell. Queen Victoria had been on the throne of England for over 50 years. The first Sherlock Holmes book was just recently published. Hmm. In less than a year after his birth, Jack the Ripper would terrorize Whitechapel, a district of London, only a few miles away from the Pratt home. I feel like I should say those were the days. I I don't know. (laughs) Those were the days. Yeah, right. (laughs) Local author Mary Shelley had written her famous novel Frankenstein 70 years earlier than his birth. Young William was the youngest of nine children. His father, Edward, was an employee of the British Indian Civil Service and expected all eight of his sons to follow in his footsteps. Can you imagine trying to feed nine boys in impoverished London in the 1890s? Holy cats. Nine boys. Well, fun thing, though. Edward, dad, is 60 years old when his youngest son, William, is born. And William's mother had helpfully been in her teens when she became Edward's third wife and was still relatively young when William was born. (laughs) However, although William's mother was much younger than her husband by, oh, 40 years, she was constantly in poor health. Well, that's an odd turn of events. That's not a, it's not great. In 1892, when young William is only five years old, Edward, his father, passes away. Tough breaks. Two years later, William's mother also dies. He's seven. This He's is seven awful, with no, yeah. it's terrible. So young William will, like so many other kids looking for a place to belong in the world, takes refuge in the theater. <laughs> After losing both of his parents, William goes to live with his half-sister from his father's second marriage in Middlesex. It was here that young William realizes that he wants to be an actor. When he's nine years old, young William is cast as the Demon King in a church production of Cinderella. After this performance, William's hooked. He knows what he wants to do for the rest of his life, and it is this thing. Mm -hmm. Once William graduates from King's College at the age of 19, William decides to just GTFO England. Gonna get out of here. May 1909, William hops on a boat, sails over to Canada, where his big plan is to earn money as a farmer. He's not acting yet, but he's he's really gonna get there, but I'll farm instead. While working as a laborer, barely making any kind of a living, William tried to get a start in Vancouver theater companies, but doesn't land with much success. William will also send a letter off to a Seattle theater agent, and eventually receives a response referring him to a company in a small British Columbia town. While on that journey, 
William decides he couldn't become an actor with the name of William Pratt. That just won't do. So he adopted a stage name, Boris Karloff. Although he would later say that the origin of Karloff was from his mother's side, there's actually not any genealogical record to prove that. Right. Most people who knew him or have studied him since believe that the name Boris Karloff was something entirely of his own imagination. Sure. But there's mystique. A little mystique. Much much more than William Pratt. But, like, yeah. Probably going to do better with one than the other. Yeah. So now Boris Karloff, William be gone. Boris Karloff arrives at the Gene Russell Theater Company, and it does not take them long to see that Boris Karloff had embellished his supposed acting experience. I was the demon king in the church production, though. But seeing the potential in Boris Karloff, they took him on anyway. His first role was in a production of Molnar's The Devil. Is he already being typecast? A little bit. But the company was really impressed with Boris. Hmm. And so he will tour Western Canada. Whoa, big news, big news, 1912. He's learning his craft. It was playing villains that Boris Karloff will make a name for himself in his earliest days of theater. He's finding his niche. Okay. After a few successful years of touring Canada, as well as the northern United States, Boris believes himself to be worthy of a larger theater town. Looking for a little bit more exposure. He's got his chops. Head on out to Chicago. That's where he's going to make his fortune. That was all very exciting. Let's get to the marriages. First marriage is to Grace Harding. It's three years, 1910 to 1913. So Boris Karloff is extremely private about his personal life. And with all the tabloid and gossip media being much different than and less invasive, certainly than it is today, not a lot is known about some of his marriages. Right, because he also probably wasn't any kind of star at that point either. So it was during these very early days of his theater work that he'll marry for the very first time. On February 23rd, 1910, Boris marries fellow English immigrant. Her name is Grace Harding. He will say, I had finally become an actor, but I mumbled, bumbled, missed cues, rammed into furniture, and sent the director's blood pressure soaring. When the curtain went up, I was getting $30 a week. When it descended, I was down to $15. Wow. (laughs) Needless to say, Boris was motivated by his career aspirations, but also by the monetary gain of working on stage. However, with acting work scarce, Boris had to travel often out with different theater companies, which if you're not home trying to build a successful marriage, the marriage may not be so successful. Yeah. So very little is known of this early marriage. In fact, some biographies do not even include wife number one, Grace Harding, as one of his wives. But it is commonly agreed that Boris and Grace did marry briefly. It's unclear how the couple got along since they divorced January 1913, a little less than three years in. Clearly, they decided that they were not meant to be. Won't take Boris long, though. Second marriage, marriage number two, to Olive de Wilton. This is two years after his divorce. In 1915, Boris marries for a second time to a young actress named Olive de Wilton. Olive was the daughter of a retired captain in the Royal Scots Greys, born in England, grows up in Western Canada. This one doesn't last very long either, about four years. So after 
their divorce, Olive returns to England to work as an actress. She will eventually return to Canada and settle in Montreal in the 1950s, where she will continue her acting work on stage and film. Very little, again, is known about that marriage or the cause of their divorce. Any kids so far? Not a one. Okay. Okay. Goodness. Third up. Third up. Montana. Lorena Williams. All right. 1920. Boris Karloff is now living in Los Angeles and trying out for movie parts. Big deal. Moving up in the world. Mm -hmm. It was here that he will marry his third wife in July of 1920. Her name is Montana, that's her nickname, Lorena Williams, and she was a 24-year-old musician from New Mexico. By 1921, Boris's film career is picking up, and he's being noticed by casting directors, in particular for his dark complexion and quote-unquote exotic features. He was cast in roles of different ethnicities, since Hollywood was not very specific or choosy, about actually being accurate in their portrayals at the time. Of course. Between 1921 and 1923, Boris was working consistently in films, and although his parts were minor, he now is actually earning his living through acting, which is an incredible thing for a creative to do. A temporary halt in movie productions, though, in 1923-1924, will cause him to go back to the work-in-a-real-gig life, He takes a job driving a delivery truck before he returns to acting in 1924. Once he returns, though, 1924 to 1925, Boris appears in what would soon become his signature, the villainous role in seven films. We also know that he moved to a different home during this time, located at 1404 North Catiline in Hollywood. This is an interesting address. Because it is now the location of the Scientology Center in Hollywood. Wow. What a weird transition. Back in 1924, it was just a home where an up-and-coming actor was living. Do you want to know the other interesting part? Sure. It is around this time that Nell Ince, Mm -hmm. the widow of Thomas Ince, after he is mysteriously dead on William Randolph Hearst's boat, the Oneida... It is Nell Ince that buys this land to build her hotel salon that she will end up selling to the Scientology Center years later. Okay. Spiderwebs. I know this. Yeah, we've discussed this several times, I think. It's fascinating. Fascinating. I love how the entire world is connected (laughs) when you know how it is. All right, back to Boris. This is apparently a busy time for Karloff because... Although there is no record or paper trail of his divorce from Montana, he found his way clear of that marriage and was married again in 1924. Three up, three down. In 14 years, Boris has a lot going on. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break here, hear from our sponsors, and come back with marriage number four. Dual gardening. Chronic migraine is 15 or more headache days a month, each lasting four hours or more. Botox onabotulinum toxin A prevents headaches in adults with chronic migraine. It's not for adults with migraine with 14 or fewer headache days a month. It prevents, on average, 8 to 9 headache days a month versus 6 to 7 for placebo. 
Prescription Botox is injected by your doctor. Effects of Botox may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness can be signs of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Side effects may include allergic reactions, neck and injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Don't receive Botox if there's a skin infection. Tell your doctor your medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. Ask your doctor and visit BotoxChronicMigraine.com or call 1-800-44-BOTOX to learn more. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, Alicia, let's hear about Lucky Bride number, number four. four. Helen Vivian Sewell was a 23-year-old actress and dancer from Maine. Helen Vivian often goes by Polly. That's her nickname. Okay. The couple were married on February 24th, 1924 in a civil ceremony performed by Los Angeles Justice of the Peace, J. Walter Hanby. He married quite a few folks, actually. Boris continues to work steadily, although he wasn't always happy with the parts he was given. In 1926, he did a film for RC Pictures called Her Honor the Governor, produced by... Joseph P. Kennedy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. starring Pauline Frederick. Spiderwebs all over this mm-hmm. one. After this film, Boris appears in The Bells with Lionel Barrymore, and Boris's eerie portrayal was one of the only redeeming qualities of that film. He went back to being frustrated with bit parts, <laughs> but refused to give up. And it was around this time that he had a lucky chance meeting outside the Universal Gate with an actor named Lon Chaney. Hmm. Boris also becomes friendly with another comedian named Oliver Hardy, who would soon become half of Laurel and Hardy. Now, Lon Chaney was one of cinema's most famous actors at the time, and the two really hit it off. They went to watch boxing, you know, like guys do, and Karloff often had to stand outside the theater when they went because he couldn't afford the admission and was too proud to allow Cheney to buy it for him. I know. One <laughs> night when Cheney's giving Boris Karloff a ride home, he gives him some advice. Find something no one else can do or will do, and they'll begin to take notice of you. Hollywood is full of competent actors. What the screen needs is individuality. It's great advice. Find is, something yep. that only you can do. Differentiate yourself. Boris and Helen will move again to Eleanor Avenue in Hollywood because that other property is no longer available. Nell Entz owns it. Boris has two roles in a few films in 1927, including Tarzan and the Gold Lion and Two Arabian Nights. But by 1928, Boris Karloff now has a different address, not on Eleanor Avenue. And there are court records from a Los Angeles judge ordering Boris to pay alimony to Helen. Okay. However, there's no record of their divorce. 
just like his previous marriage and divorce. Paperwork just goes missing. These are just lost, yeah. Problematically, Boris Karloff apparently refused to pay alimony because he was ordered to return to court on December 5th, 1928, for contempt of court. (laughs) It doesn't seem to upset him too terribly much because on July 19th, 1929, the following year, Boris is back in court for having refused to pay the alimony, but now he has attorney's fees on top of that bill as well. Boris, don't be a deadbeat. Despite divorces not being recorded well in the 1920s, (laughs) these legal issues were taken more seriously because it is documented that the judge, quote, offered to drop the contempt charge in return for his payment to Helen of $100 in cash and an additional $240 in installments of $50 per month plus $15 per week for a total of 54 weeks and the assumption of all bills held in common. Thorough. I mean, pretty, pretty fair offer. I'll drop contempt, but you got to do this. And Boris is like, yeah, that's probably not a bad deal. So he will take the offer from the judge, and this will effectively put an end to Boris's relationship and drama with Helen. Again, unknown what caused the marriage to end. Up until this point, Boris Karloff, Career mm, was going well, now isn't going so well. He's staying employed as an actor, but he's nowhere close to achieving his goals and is becoming very frustrated by his lack of success. Add on to that, his personal life, now with four wives under his belt in a scant 16 years, was probably even more disappointing. But those things were soon going to change. 1929, doesn't take him long, same damn year! (laughs) Boris Karloff attends a dinner party in Los Angeles where he meets a lovely young woman named Dorothy Stein. This time, his romantic interest was not involved in the entertainment industry at all. Dorothy Stein, I love this, was a librarian for the city of Los Angeles and lived in Hollywood with her mom. Old Dorothy, she's intelligent and she's elegant, and Boris falls for her immediately, Mm -hmm. hooked. The couple are married at Hollywood Presbyterian Church on April the 20th, 1930, after a very brief courtship. The groom forgot to mention a few details of his life to his new bride, including the fact that he had already been married four times. Wow. You'd think that would be relevant. Well, (laughs) this seems to be acceptable to Dorothy. I don't think Dorothy's too upset. Dorothy goes ahead and uh, accepts this later revelation because Dorothy didn't bother to tell him that she'd also been married and divorced. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. They really found each other. Communicating very, very well. Okay. All right. I love this. I love this. Unable to afford a honeymoon. The couple drove Boris's Ford to their little shack above Laurel Canyon (laughs) where they would live for the next two years. Because Laurel Canyon, like budding, Mm-hmm. Hollywood, it's still kind of far out. It's not far out at all. But at the time, in that time, it was still kind of the enclave of... Sure. And this is, I mean, Great Depression era. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, a little shack. Things would dramatically change, though, for the couple after those two years in Laurel Canyon. And it all started when Boris was offered a role portraying a monster. Find your niche. <laughs> 
Find your niche. Now, I don't feel like I would be doing this particular Frankenstein bit any kind of service if I did not mention just a little brief pop-in about how Frankenstein gets written. In the spring of 1816, in what would become known as the year without a summer, Mm. Mary Wollenstone Craft Godwin was vacationing with her lover and future husband, Percy Shelley, in Switzerland, and their friend, you'd know him by his familiar name, Lord. Yes, Lord Byron. Yeah, story. (laughs) So these three are trapped inside by an unseasonably terribly cold summer. And they will all partly entertain themselves, I think, with copious amounts of substances, which is pretty much what's happening. But they're also reading German ghost stories. And inspired by all the discussions, Lord Byron's like, hey, I got a challenge. We're not doing anything else. Let us all write the scariest ghost story of our own that we can. Mary, not one to be outdone, begins cranking out in her mind, her mastermind. She works feverishly on a tale of a doctor obsessed with conquering death who will create a grotesque creature in his own image. Welcome to Frankenstein, or as it was known then, the modern Prometheus. It will become Mary Shelley's most famous work and the first science fiction Mm -hmm. story of its kind. Dedicated young scientist, Victor Frankenstein, is the man. The monster is not Frankenstein. Right, it's Frankenstein's monster. Thank you. Victor Frankenstein pushes medical and scientific limits to create a human being from old body parts and strange chemicals, resulting in an eight-foot-tall monster with the mind of a newborn. It was a really bad summer (laughs) with Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley and Lord Byron, and that triangle is trashy with a capital T, but that's not the story we're telling you today. We're going to advance a hundred years later. Because Mary Shelley's Frankenstein had been adapted for the stage in 1931, and hence Hollywood comes calling, Universal Studios buys the rights to the adaptation, decides to make a movie. Poof. Now, the biggest question at Universal Studios is who can play the monster in a nuanced and heartfelt way that showed the inner struggle of that character, of Frankenstein's monster, Man or Muppet. If Lon Chaney had not died the year before, at the young age of 47, Mm. he probably would have been the strongest contender. Universal did have Bela Lugosi, who was the main reason the film Dracula was a big hit. Bela Lugosi tested for the role. Meanwhile, here's Boris, still playing bit parts, but his talent is being noticed more and more, especially after Howard Hawks, cast him as the prison warden in the criminal code. Howard Hawks, legendary. I've got to cover his trashy divorces sometime. Howard Hawks in criminal code. It is here that Boris Karloff shows his capacity to make the audience imagine the details of a scene without actually showing them what was happening. This is a skill he would perfect playing Frankenstein's monster. Hawks allows Boris to give input into how the scene should be shot, what exactly happened during a scene, which is exactly what happened during a scene in which 
Karloff's character stabs a prison guard. Karloff's idea was for the scene to be shot with a single dolly, with Boris's back to the camera, slowly walking towards his victim, tapping him with a single gesture, that of him thrusting out his left arm with a knife in his hand, then him backing into a closet where the stabbing occurs entirely off screen. Howard Hawks asked Boris to recreate the facial expressions for a close-up, but Boris convinced him that it would be better to stick with the single long take. Boris later explained, The audience couldn't see my face, but they were imagining the most terrifying expressions on it, far more spine-chilling expressions than I could have possibly achieved. I simply provided the frame. They had filled in the picture. I knew that a single shot showing my face would have spoilt the effect. Imagination alone provided those thrills. Boris continues this less-is-more approach to acting throughout his career, which allows him to stir the viewer's imagination with his subtle dramatic style instead of putting them face-to-face with any kind of graphic depiction of violence. About the chance to test for the role, Karloff later said, Of course I was delighted because it meant another job if I was able to land it. Actually, that's all it meant to me. At the same time, I felt rather hurt because I had on very good straight makeup and my best suit and I was being tested for the monster. (laughs) But that was that. I was very grateful for the opportunity. So Boris is shooting the gangster film Graft when he was asked by the head writer to test for the role in Frankenstein. One of the universal makeup artists, Jack P. Pierce, was given the job to transform Karloff into Frankenstein's monster. Now, Pierce is an expert. He is meticulous in his research. He spends hours researching the human anatomy, surgery, medicine, criminology, burial customs, and electrodynamics in order to perfect the makeup and the look for Boris Karloff. Some fun facts that Jack P. Pierce learned along the way. He learned that a surgeon could open the cranium six different ways. So he chose a large scar from the right side of Boris's forehead, which was built up with layers of cheesecloth and cotton strips. Boris Karloff also collaborated in this process. So when the makeup was nearly completed, he looked in the mirror and thought that the eyes were too normal and alive and natural. Those eyes are way too alive, my friend. we got to deaden those up. So Pierce will achieve this effect by adding a layer of mortician's wax to Boris Karloff's eyelids. Visually, it was a striking look. Very much so. So between makeup wardrobe, adding all of the additional components of the costume, getting him into stage ready was a process that would take between four and six hours every single day. Can you imagine what people did before podcasting (laughs) where you just had to sit there for six hours, right? In his characteristically very humble manner, though, Boris Karloff will give most of the credit for him getting the role and its success to Jack Pierce. Frankenstein, the film. Will premiere in New York on December the 4th, 1931. Unsurprisingly, Boris Karloff becomes a household name overnight. He would also become synonymous with this role. The public reaction was overwhelming and crowds flocked to see this movie. 
Unlike Dracula, which was also a commercial success, Frankenstein was also a critical success. Variety Magazine writes that it, quote, looks like a Dracula plus, touching a new peak in horror plays, unquote, and described Karloff's performance as, quote, a fascinating acting bit of mesmerism, (laughs) unquote. Many years later, Boris Karloff would say this about his character. He was inarticulate, helpless, and tragic. I owe everything to him. He's my best friend. He expressed the same sentiment slightly different to a different interviewer by saying that he, quote, being his character, was the best friend I ever had. He was the things that made me, that lifted me from wherever I was to wherever I've gotten. Hmm. Big hit, big movie. Now you're a bona fide movie star, Boris. What comes next? Career after Frankenstein's pretty exciting. <laughs> Boris and Dorothy are going to buy their first real home. Oh. Located at 9936 Toluca Lane Avenue in North Hollywood. Congratulations. <laughs> this is kind of a big deal because mm-hmm. their neighbors, all the other people who are buying in this area, are Betty Davis, W.C. Fields, Mary Astor, Bing Crosby. Other celebrities are escaping for a little peace and quiet in North Hollywood. And now Boris Karloff is a hot commodity. Everybody wants them in their horror film. In the decade that followed Frankenstein, Boris Karloff stars in The Mummy, The Ghoul, The Black Cat, The Raven, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein. Lull type cast. In 1933, Boris Karloff, a little fun thing here, is one of nine founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. These actors, the nine of them, band together to form a union to deal with all the unfair hours and work conditions of the Hollywood studios. Although it was much needed at the time, the formation of the Screen Actors Guild was really controversial, and a lot of high-profile actors were like, we're not going to do that and tank our career. But then there's a little meeting at Frank Morgan's house. Frank Morgan played the wizard in The Wizard of Oz, and at that meeting, Eddie Cantor is making very persuasive arguments for the necessity of the Screen Actors Guild. And once that happens, it grows pretty quickly. In the three weeks after that particular pivotal meeting, the membership goes from 80 actors to 4,000. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love old Hollywood. Okay. <laughs> Starting in the 1940s and 1950s, Boris Karloff regularly appears on television and radio programs. These appearances would often play on his persona as the villain or horror character. Find something you can do. He's doing it. One example, though, is pretty fun. Previous TD alum, Dean Martin. He's on the Martin and Lewis radio program, April 1953. And Boris Karloff says, In spite of the fiendish parts that I play in pictures, I'm a really kind and mild-mannered man. (laughs) In fact, I'm as soft-hearted and gentle a man as you could ever meet. Don't I appear that way? Dean, why don't you answer? Dean Martin replies, I can't, you're choking me. (laughs) Well played. Oh, Dean Martin. In 1938, Dorothy and Boris welcome their only child, a daughter they named Sarah Jane. Boris Karloff was 51 years old at this time and was filming Bride of Frankenstein 
and was rushed to the hospital in full makeup and costume to see his wife and new baby. <laughs> Welcome to the world, little one. <laughs> Boris's friends, Bela Lugosi and Basil Rathbone, presented Boris with a tiny pair of Frankenstein monster boots upon Sarah Jane's birth. This is the sweetest thing ever. I just love this story. He's such a nice man. So Boris dotes on his daughter and would often send and receive telegrams on set from Sarah Jane or her mother on Sarah Jane. I mean, Sarah Jane's a baby. Yeah. She's not going down to the telegraph office. <laughs> on August 19th, 1939, Boris receives one of these telegrams while he's on the Universal lot. It's from Dorothy, but it's wired using the baby's name. Excitement of your picture starting produced first tooth. Love, Sarah Jane. <laughs> Boris turned the Western Union form over and wrote on the back, Sarah Jane Karloff, 2320 Beaumont Drive, Beverly Hills. Upper or lower? Suspense <laughs> holding up production. Congratulations and love, Daddy. Isn't that just the sweetest uh -huh. thing you've ever heard? Mm -hmm. Upper or lower? Production cannot start until I get this answer. He dotes on his kid. It's just... Oh, guys, just such a fascinating story. Let's flip in another break. I'm going to come back with a spooky, ghostly house haunting with a spider web you're never going to see coming. Can't wait. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros, two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. All right, so we have a happy dad in Boris Karloff, Hollywood monster. Hollywood monster, happy dad, wife going great. Now I got a little bit of a ghost story mm -hmm. for you. Because you came for the trashy divorces, but the side benefit 
Where we're going here is a little bit of trashy real estate. I now have the fascinating story of 2320 Beaumont Drive in Beverly Hills. Interestingly, this home located at 2320 Beaumont Drive in Beverly Hills had previously been rented by no less than Catherine of Arrogance, Catherine Hepburn. Catherine of Arrogance, sorry, Catherine Hepburn believes this home to be haunted. Here's how the story goes. One night, Eve March, Hepburn's friend and maid, watched the door latch open and close by itself. And the next day, Hepburn and March watched a ghostly man walk from the pool into the apartment, closing the door behind him. Now, the first time Catherine Hepburn's younger brother, Richard, stays overnight, he tells her that a young man stood over his bed all night staring down at him. Creepy. He was too afraid to move until sunrise. Wow. Because of all the hauntings, because of the just like daily apparitions that are showing up, Catherine Hepburn's like, I gotta go. She does not stay on the premises long, moving out in 1934, at which point Boris Karloff moves in with his wife, Dorothy. Does it go bad for them? No. Boris and Dorothy only find a home that is paradise. They keep a lot of animals, including, here's a fun collection of animals on their little Belmont Zoo, a tortoise, ducks, chickens, six dogs, a cow, a parrot, and a 400-pound pig they named Violet. Okay. (laughs) I don't think too many ghosts are coming around with that many animals. No, no. Boris also, as previously mentioned, loves to garden and was especially attached to his rose garden with more than 20 varieties of roses. So this is, there's a, that's a patch of land. A little bit, yeah. All right. Yeah, this isn't like a quarter acre lot. This is. I don't actually have the size of the measurements of the acreage, but I wouldn't think it's too terribly small or it's really cramped. Well, yeah. Now this rose garden is so popular and so beautiful that apparently it's rumored to be where several of Boris's friends ask for their cremains to be buried. Hmm. Because it's just that lovely. In addition to all the lovely 20 varieties of roses, Boris planted laurel and eucalyptus trees and enjoys farming his massive fruit orchard. Yes, I guess you got to have a little bit of land. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the book, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, The Expanded Story of a Haunting Collaboration... Author Gregory William Mink says, quote, For Karloff, home was his Mexican farmhouse. The bizarre high amidst the oak trees and honeysuckle of Coldwater Canyon in the mountains above Beverly Hills. 2320 Beaumont Drive with its pool and beautiful rambling gardens previously had been the address of Catherine Hepburn. The actress sincerely believed that a ghost haunted the house, moving the furniture, jiggling the latch on Miss Hepburn's bedroom door, and the looming over the guest bed. So terrifying, Hepburn's brother Richard said that he couldn't sleep one single night during his visit. After Kate's friend Laura Harding tried to have her dog ferret out the ghost to no avail, Hepburn vacated, and Boris and Dorothy had moved into the haunted hacienda in the spring of 1934. Laura Harding, Catherine Hepburn's friend, says, We felt rather sorry for the ghost, 
After all, the spirit had likely met its match in the star who played Frankenstein's monster. (laughs) Perhaps Boris scared away the ghost, or maybe they were kindred spirits, for the star loved his little farm. But that's not the only thing that happens at this place on Beaumont Drive. Producer Leland Hayward and his wife, Margaret Sullivan, also lived at the estate for a short amount of time. Think those are both Trashy Divorces alums. Also another Trashy Divorces alum, Elliot Gould, leased it for some time. The most famous story of his time there is when he threw all the furniture into the pool. In 2003... Frasier actress Perry Gilpin purchased the estate. She will sell it in 2007 to Friends writers and producers Scott Silvery and Shauna Goldberg-Meehan. Fascinating. Another story reported in the Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, the expanded story of a haunting collaboration book, just adds another confirmation of Catherine Hepburn's snarky nature, which I always like to talk about when I'm able. sure. The author writes, A recent owner relates that in a late, (laughs) Catherine of Arrogance, man. The author writes that a recent owner relates that a late in life Catherine Hepburn, who did die in 2003, suddenly appeared one day at the home without warning, mysteriously dressed in black and inspecting the house and grounds. Well, Hepburn said to the owner, I'm glad to see you haven't fucked the place up. Okay. Oh, Kathy, Kathy. Was she looking for the ghost? Not sure. Okay. This home was last sold in March of 2020 for the bargain pickup price of $9.2 million. (gasps) Boris and Dorothy do have many good times at their farm oasis at 2320 Beaumont Drive. Sarah Jane, his daughter, recalls some of those happy days. I have a lot of memories of him at 2320. I know he used to keep his wire-rimmed glasses by the bed at night. He was wonderful with animals. I can remember being in the pool with him. I can remember picking out a rabbit with him from some family friends. They had a lop-eared rabbit that I didn't pick, and I was allowed to make my own selection. But he said to me afterwards that he would have picked that one because it looked like it needed a home. (laughs) He was an avid reader and a devoted father. I have loads of children's books from him but nothing grisly. But you can't spend all your time gardening and raising your pigs. Why not? Well, Boris also has some other hobbies. He enjoys playing cricket and rugby Hmm. at the Hollywood Cricket Club. He is also one of the men known as the British Colony. This is a group of actors all from England. Joining him in this English colony moniker are Clive Brook, Errol Flynn, Cary Grant, David Niven, Basil Rothbone, and Nigel Bruce. That's marriage number five, though. And we said he got married six times. Mm -hmm. Sadly, Boris and Dorothy will divorce in May 1946, actually after several years of living separately. Hmm. What could perhaps prompt this fifth and final divorce? It could be his sixth and final marriage to Evelyn Helmore. Because the day, the next day after his divorce from Dorothy was finalized. He gets married. Boris Karloff will marry Evelyn Hope Helmore. Mm -hmm. She is an assistant story editor for David O. Selznick. The spider webs in this story are 
strong. It is Halloween. Feel the magic time. Evelyn takes a great interest in Boris's career. They will live part of the time in Los Angeles and part of the time at the Dakota in New York City. Hmm. Fascinating. That's where John Lennon was shot outside of. Yes, it is. Many, many a famous folk have lived in the Dakota. Boris continues to act, appear on television and radio programs, remains very active in the causes of the Screen Actors Guild. Through SAG, Boris becomes close friends with future President Ronald Reagan, who said of him, My friendship with Boris was based on years of association as board members and officers of the Guild. He was public-spirited and a stalwart in Guild activities on behalf of our fellow actors. As a person, he was one of the finest men I've ever known. He was a quiet man. He had a rich sense of humor and great intelligence. Add to this high standards of morality, and you have quite a man. Hmm. By the 1960s, Boris and Evelyn had an apartment in the Kensington section of London and also bought a little, I call this quote-unquote cottage, in Bramshot, East Hampshire, which they will name Roundabout. Although we will never hold his later work up on the pedestal of his signature role, Boris continues to be prolific throughout his life and worked right up into his death. In fact, he is even one of the most recognizable voices in the beloved Christmas movies as the narrator in How the Grinch Stole Christmas in 1966. In real life, Boris Karloff had been dressing up like Santa every year since 1940 to hand out presents to kids in the Baltimore hospital. Don't you kind of have a little soft spot for Boris? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. His final film, Boris's Was was in Peter Bogdanovich's Targets in 1968, where, very appropriately, Boris plays an aging horror film star. Hmm. In all, he made over 90 movies, even more television appearances, long and storied career. Boris Karloff will suffer from emphysema during the last years of his life. He will need oxygen tanks to be brought on sets for him to use between takes, as he only had, can you imagine, still working to your death with only one functioning lung. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Boris Karloff, the very gentle monster, dies February 2nd, 1969, at King Edward VII Hospital of Pneumonia at the age of 81 years old. He took Mary Shelley's monster and portrayed him in a humane and compassionate way. Biographer Gordon B. Shriver writes, Generations of children were drawn to the monster, first in movie houses and later over living room television because of Karloff's sympathetic creation of a monster that was more to be pitied than censored. Thousands of children wrote compassionate letters to Frankenstein and to Karloff, and Karloff always was especially delighted to know that he had communicated something to his youthful audience. Sarah Jane Karloff, his daughter, said, He preferred the word terror to the word horror because he felt that horror denoted almost disgust and revulsion. He felt that terror invited the use of the audience's imagination and participation. It implies suspense and not having to show blood and gore and dumping it right into the audience's laps, which has become the way of many films today. He would not have enjoyed 
the modern-day horror film. (laughs) Of his signature role and the genre he was forever associated with, Boris does have much to say. The original monster in my later roles as his creator are tales of mystery and adventure. Karloff maintains this, saying, Our stories were nearer to Grimm's fairy tales or Edgar Allan Poe. I've been working for years on horror films, and I know that children love them. It isn't really horror to them, you know. It's exciting adventure. Too many similar pictures today simply rely on shock. That's bad. When asked if he minded being typecast, (laughs) Boris replied, Certainly I was typed, but what is typing? It's a trademark, a means by which the public recognizes you. Actors work all their lives to achieve that. I got mine with just one picture. It was a blessing. Sarah Karloff says of her father, People who worked with him considered him to be the most consummate professional, and the people who knew him simply adored him. He is one of the very few people in the profession who had nothing negative ever written or said about him. When my godmother was doing interviews for the biography she wrote, she said, Almost to a person, people would start their remarks by saying, Oh, dear Boris. That is how they titled their book, Dear Boris. He was such a lovely, warm, funny, articulate, well-educated, gentle, and kind human being. Boris Karloff, his fame and success never got to him or changed his attitude and personality. He always remained humble and gracious and referred to himself as just an actor. He said, I have often thought about how absurd and lopsided it is that men like my brothers should spend their lives in the service of their country and be comparatively unknown, whereas I, because of a series of lucky accidents, have been granted fame and some fortune. Anything I achieve in my life in no way compares to anything they or the hundreds of men like them have done. Boris Karloff, class act. All treats, no tricks, little ghost story, <laughs> little real estate, hall of famer. Sure. Definitely fits for the five divorces part. Last marriage of success. I love that story. Extremely spider webby. Very spider webby. As trash cans go, I don't know. I hope Jack Pierce decorates them all. Cause yeah. whoa, six different ways to enter a cranium. Yeah. Not sure I needed that bit of information. The story had everything. <laughs> Science, spider webs. Y'all, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in today. I don't even feel like designating a trash can count. No. I hope they're all filled with trash candy. A rose garden count. There you go. Boris Carlot. I mean, I he could have been a terrible person, but thanks to the press, we'll never know. Sure. Well, but it doesn't I'm, sound like that's the way it went. I'm sure his ex-wives probably had some choice things to say about him, but but no, sounds like a decent and domestic fella. Roses and good candy from your Halloween haunts. <laughs> we hope everybody has a delightful mm-hmm. Halloween. Everybody be safe. We Boo. hope you kid all the candy you want. Don't forget, there's still time to get tickets for our live show coming up. Stacy, tell the people. Sure. Thursday, November 3rd, next Thursday. This coming Thursday. This Thursday. This Thursday. Several days from now, Thursday. Uh, Go to moment.co slash trashy divorces to get your ticket. And uh, we hope to see you there. It's going to be fun. 
We can't wait. We're going to be back also on Wednesday with a brand new Trashy Divorces episode for you. It is just all treats, no tricks over here at Trashy Divorces headquarters. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, sending you all the enormous, all the good, all the happy fall. Keep those hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy, friends. Stuff those bags full of trash candy goodies. Full-size candy bars. Full-size, Margaret. Full-size. None of that fun size. (laughs) Bye, everybody. See you Wednesday. (laughs) Bye. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all